Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, reveal your word to us this day. Help us to deepen our Lenten practices that through them we might come to know you more deeply and serve you more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's gospel lesson is from the gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Hear the words of the gospel. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Night is the time of hiddenness, where shadows mask movement and the cover of darkness cloaks identity. So if you want to pay a visit to a controversial teacher, then nightfall is your friend. It allows you to go places you can't go in broad daylight for fear of being seen. It permits you to travel in secrecy. So for all of the uncertainties inherent in the dark of night, in a funny way, it can actually provide a measure of safety, even empowerment. Nightfall can also provide clarity. 
Without the distractions of daytime busyness, those late-night conversations we have when the rest of the household is asleep can quickly go to deeper and more profound places. So Nicodemus, a highly credentialed religious leader, slips through the shadows of night to question and learn from this uneducated Galilean villager named Jesus. And it's no small thing. You can feel the tension in the air smothering you like a wet cloth as he shuffles quickly but quietly through the streets, perhaps even glancing over his shoulder every once in a while. And I imagine he breathes a sigh of relief once Jesus welcomes him in. For now he can be the student without fear of embarrassment before his peers. And we all know behind every great student is a great teacher. He has seen all of the signs Jesus has done. He has seen Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding and avert a social disaster. Nicodemus intuitively knows there is something about him that is divine in nature if he could just figure out what it is. Now, on an intellectual level, Nicodemus seems to understand. At a head level, he fundamentally knows that Jesus is a teacher come from God. But at a heart level, he doesn't know what that means. He is simply not there yet. He has not been one of Jesus' inner circle of 12 or even one of his extended circle. To this point, Nicodemus has only experienced Jesus at arm's length. Somewhat close, but not too close. Because there's still that margin of safety he needs. Sort of like the night. For Nicodemus to say, I know you are a teacher come from God without the life transformation it entails is like watching a documentary on an unfamiliar culture and then saying, I know what it's like to live there without ever having experienced it yourself. He knows only to the extent of his incomplete experience. He knows, but he doesn't really know. And isn't that what Jesus essentially says? You think you know, but you really don't. You can't comprehend God's realm by just watching the movie. You can't understand it if all you do is participate in it vicariously. You have to live it yourself. You have to be an actor in this divine human drama or in Jesus' doublespeak. You have to be born anew. You have to be born from above. It seems Nicodemus understands it literally. So I'm supposed to re-enter my mother's womb? He's either literal or he is just full of good old-fashioned sarcasm, which we often use to hide our hurts. We use it to cover up our yearning for something that we lack deep inside. It often cloaks our longing for something more. 
My sense is that Nicodemus, by virtue of seeking out Jesus in the night, is looking for that something more that for all of his religious training and academic pedigree and head knowledge, he doesn't see anywhere else. He is spiritually curious, an ancient seeker, even a person for our times, maybe even a would-be, but not yet quite their disciple. He comes with so many questions, and all he gets are circular answers of water and spirit and birth from above and birth anew. And to his and our dismay, there are no neat and tidy answers to his questions. Like a good teacher who seeks real growth in her students, Jesus also refuses to spoon-feed him the answers. Jesus challenges him to move beyond the surface understanding that he has. But Jesus does point the way if Nicodemus will only see it in the night. The question is, will he? Will he make the leap from a spiritually, albeit intellectually curious student to a true disciple? Jesus reaches back to a story Nicodemus would know well. It's a strange story, a story from the time of the Exodus during that long 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness after fleeing slavery. They are impatient as they have been many times and they complain very loudly for life in the wilderness was hard. Why die out there in misery, they asked, and they forgot God's enduring faithfulness. So in this story, again, that Nicodemus would know, in this story, a plague of venomous snakes comes, death ensues, and only then do the Israelites realize that they have failed to be faithful to God. So in that story, God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze, wrapped around a pole, and lift it up high, so that whenever a poisonous snake bit someone by looking up at this bronze symbol of death, paradoxically, they would live. That is the story Nicodemus knows when he hears Jesus say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, life lived in the presence of God. So even though Jesus hasn't gotten there yet, he is pointing Nicodemus to the cross as the place to look, the place where God's mercy destroys death and where hope resides. Look to the cross and find life. But it's not about the cross itself so much as it is about where and to whom the cross leads. Writes Brett Younger, the cross doesn't heal so much as the love behind the cross heals. Even though I have known this story of Nicodemus my entire life, from first hearing it in children's Bibles, 
going all the way to preaching on this text several times before I ever came to this church, I have to say it has never confounded me more than it did this week. For the more time I spent with it, the deeper I dove into it, the more like Nicodemus I became. Confused, spun around, puzzled by the odd language, double meanings, and less than straightforward interpretation. So it makes me wonder what state Nicodemus is in when he departs Jesus' company. I wonder what he thinks about on his way home. I suspect he leaves just as puzzled as he was when he arrived, for he gives no indication that he somehow got that something more that he was looking for when he first came. He simply fades away from the story like the guest who quietly leaves the party and you never notice until hours later. He just backs away into the shadows of misunderstanding and nightfall. What will happen to him? Will he ever understand? Will he find the life he's looking for? Jesus has not told him what to believe at an intellectual level. And Jesus has not told us that either. Theologians and preachers, well, we do that all the time. But Jesus, not quite so much. But what he has done is tell us where to look. People will occasionally comment on this cross that I wear every Sunday. It was a gift from a seminary classmate for my ordination to the Ministry of Word and Sacrament. And my classmate delivered it to my house the day after my ordination. And I remember that day well when I look at this cross, but more so when I look at it, I look at its shape. The shape of any cross tells us how to live. In relationship with God, symbolized by the vertical, and with one another, symbolized by the horizontal. And what I love about the shape of this particular cross are the lines that curve and connect almost seamlessly from one dimension to the other. There's a sense of movement, of fluidity, of relationship, connected in all directions, interwoven. I also love this cross. I remember the day that it was installed here, lifted up for us all to look at. It is a reminder of that way, that shape, that God calls us to live. In her reflections on the cross in our all-church Lenten read, Jill Duffield says that a cross-shaped life is perplexing and countercultural. It's less, what would Jesus do, she says, and more, who would Jesus be? An impossible standard, she says, to show love, to exercise humility, to look to the interest of others. A cruciform life makes for an odd shape, in an ethos awash in consumerism, competition, and tribalism. 
So where to begin? The cross-shaped life of discipleship perhaps begins with a cross-shaped gaze. It matters where we look. In her book, Duffield also writes, we look to the cross, that instrument of death, humiliation, and stark warning for inspiration and assurance. Too easily, we move from glory to glory, from Jesus' healings and teachings straight to his resurrection appearances and ascended glory. But we look to the cross for inspiration to endure the costs of discipleship. Nicodemus walked away from Jesus that night, but the rest of the gospel story suggests his encounter with Jesus began to do its work. Later on, Nicodemus reappears when the temple police want to arrest Jesus, and although he's not all the way there yet, he starts to inch ever closer to defending Jesus. And then after the worst of the worst on that infamous hill, it was Nicodemus who helped Joseph of Arimathea with Jesus' body after it was taken down from the cross. Had he indeed now become a disciple? Following Jesus minus the cross does not constitute discipleship. Instead, merely spiritual curiosity or a free, no-risk, cheap grace trial of apostleship or perhaps aloof reporting on the oddity of this Jesus of Nazareth. That's Duffield's challenge to us. So as followers of Jesus, we ask how will we live? What will hold our gaze? This Lenten season, may we dare to let go of our intellectual curiosity just for a while. In the midst of our struggle to understand and make sense of how God in Jesus is at work in this world, may we look to the cross that is before us, the one that is hard to look at, assured that indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Thanks be to God. Amen.